Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving when they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then down to verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you, then what sign, I'm sorry, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you take a seat, let me take a moment just to pray for our time as we hear from God's word together. And so let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the King of kings, the Prince of peace. And in the power of your spirit, we come to you to worship you. For apart from the work of your spirit, we are not able to call you Father. And apart from the work of the Son, you are not able to call us your beloved children. And so, Lord, we stand upon the firm and true promise that Christ is our only hope in life and death. And that he is the one that our hearts long for. And so, Lord, what my prayer is in this time is that as we gather in this place, as those join us from wherever they are online, Lord, I pray that you would meet us in our longings, that you would show us that that everything that we are searching after in this world ultimately is a search for you. 
And so, Lord, I ask that you would meet us in our disappointments, in our failures, in our fears and anxieties, and that you would grant us the ability by the power of your Spirit to hear from you, to respond to you. And so, Lord, may this time as a family together be a time that is edifying to us and honoring to you. We pray this in the name of Christ, our King, and for his glory. Amen. I was, um, I was recently going through some, some old photos of mine, and I came across uh, a picture that I took a few years ago, actually, one early morning. Uh, I was trying to find my way to the church, and if you remember a few years ago, K-10 Highway was like under construction for like, felt like forever, and, and I was so perplexed by what I saw, I had to pull over, and I looked at these signs for a good 90 seconds to try to make sense of what I was seeing. It's like, I looked at this. And I was like, what? And it was so early. It was just like the information that I was like gathering through my eyes was not making sense in my brain. It's like detour west this way, detour west this way. Like this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Because the irony of like, like road signs are meant to offer clarifying instruction and direction when you're confused. The irony is that these are creating even more confusion if they didn't exist in the first place. And so as I was thinking about this, I was like, I'm wondering, you know, I bet there's multiple examples of very unhelpful signs. And sure enough, the internet has multiple examples of these. For example, this one, um, am I supposed to slow down um, or am I supposed to limit the number of children I have? I'm not sure. Either way, both good advice. That's good advice. Um, This one may be good news for several families with boys. Uh, kids with gas eat free. Uh, that's, that's great. I don't know how they test that. Um, <laughs> uh, this one, I, I love Home Depot. I'm a great fan of Home Depot. Um, I need them to help me remodel my bathroom. I don't need them to help me go to the bathroom. Restrooms this way, you can do it. We can help. That's, that is a DIY project I will take care of myself. Thank you very much. Now, okay, now these, obviously, there's, like, I have so many of these people. This was, it could be the whole sermon. But, but there, there are some examples where signs are intentionally or faulty. They, they do not communicate what they mean to communicate. But sometimes the sign is, the fault is in us, that we misinterpret the meaning. And one of my favorite examples of this is the classic instructions on hand dryers, you know, push this button and then the, you know, the heat comes out. But some comedic genius, you've probably seen this before, decided to interpret these instructions this way, push the button, receive bacon. That's what it looks like. That's kind of what it looks like, right? I think if this is actually what these devices did, we would have more likely people washing their hands. So... Uh, now, again, whether it, is, whether it is detour signs or whether it is the instruction on how to dry hands, signs are meant to point us to something. They are meant to instruct us. They are meant to give direction. But sometimes they create more confusion than they are meant to accomplish. And in some ways, that's actually a fairly good description of the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. In John's gospel, uniquely in particular, we see Jesus offering various signs and symbols and even miracles that are meant to point us to himself, but oftentimes those signs produce more confusion and even opposition than what maybe Jesus was expecting or anticipating. But what we see in the gospel of John is that these signs that Jesus gives us, even if we find them confusing... The design behind them is to point to the life that Jesus brings us. And so this morning, we are returning to the Gospel of John. Uh, We started the Gospel of John earlier this year. We took a break in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're returning to John in John chapter 6. And in this sermon series that we're calling The Signs of Life, 
We are exploring the various symbols and signs that Jesus gives us, pointing to himself and to his kingdom. But like many signs that we already saw earlier, the signs Jesus gives oftentimes produce more confusion and even opposition. And so as Jesus introduces this sign of bread that we've seen in our reading today, uh, there are two things that I want us to consider that Jesus is saying to us. And I'm, I'm kind of encapsulating it in one statement. The one idea I want us to look at today is this, that only Jesus satisfies, but only on his terms. Only Jesus satisfies, but only on his terms. So whether you are a follower of Jesus, whether you are a skeptic, whether you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, I'm glad we're all here together to sit under the teaching of Jesus in John 6 and explore what does it mean that he is the bread of life. So if you have your Bibles open, keep them to John 6 uh, to give a little context to know where we are in John's gospel. At this time in Jesus' public ministry, he has started to become more and more publicly known. So much so that he has kind of amassed a large following of people who are coming after him. And some are, are, are identifying as disciples. Some are just kind of intrigued about who Jesus is. But we see in, in John's gospel in chapter 6, a crowd of about 5,000 people have gathered to hear from Jesus because of his reputation. And this leads to the miracle that's recorded in all the gospels of the feeding of the 5,000. And what's so unique, one of my favorite things about this uh, account that John gives isn't actually the miracle itself, it's what John records for us before the miracle in verse 5. Look at me at chapter 6, verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So before the crowd even gets to Jesus, before Jesus is even able the, uh, given the opportunity to know why they're coming, Jesus is already anticipating their needs and is already putting together a plan to care for this crowd regardless of their motives for why they are coming to him. That's very telling of the type of Messiah that Jesus is, that he is so tender and compassionate, thoughtful, and anticipating the needs of others regardless of their views of him. And what we find is that there are some people in this crowd who are rather opposed to Jesus. And so Jesus, when he sees a crowd of people coming to him in need, he does not see them as a threat to his well-being. And he does not see them as an interruption or disruption to his comfort. Rather, Jesus sees this crowd of people with needs as an opportunity to show love. And just as a side note, man, like we, we should be described in that way. Would we be a people who saw the needs of others around us as opportunities to show love, compassion, mercy, and hospitality? And so regardless of why they've come, Jesus is choosing to preemptively love them to welcome them in regardless of their motives or why they have come to see him. And this is very telling of who Jesus really is. And, th and this is important. The reason I think John records this for us is because it's a way to prepare us for how Jesus uses his signs and miracles to reveal truth. This is actually the way in which the miracles are meant to be understood. Rather than seeing the miracles as proof of Jesus' power, the miracles and signs that Jesus gives are actually meant to point to his character. I'm going to say that one more time. Rather than seeing the miracles and signs that Jesus offers as proof of his power, they are meant to point to his character. 
And so often we tend to look at the miracles of Jesus as just manifestations of his divinity. And that's true. It's no less than that. But the miracles of Jesus are meant to actually do something far greater. If Jesus wanted to prove his divinity, he could have done something much more remarkable than just feed 5,000 people from a few loaves of bread and two fish. He could have harnessed a lightning bolt in his hand. You know, he could have made the mountains crumble. He could have made the royals good again. Like, he could have done so many things that would have been seen as miraculous. But the point is, because like we read these miracles, like, they're not that amazing. Are we really to conclude that Jesus is the Son of God based on these miracles? But again, the primary purpose behind the signs and the miracles is not about proving something, but rather is about pointing to something. What Jesus is doing in the signs and miracles is introducing us to himself and showing us the type of king and kingdom that he is bringing. That's what is happening in these signs. So let me illustrate it this way. Imagine, imagine meeting a new person, and they're incredibly wealthy, and the first thing they tell you is how much money they make. That would be rather strange, right? Rather uncomfortable. Or, or imagine meeting someone who is just ridiculously intelligent, and, and they, the first thing they tell you is what they got on their ACT and how many degrees they have from how many Ivy League schools. Or, or imagine meeting somebody who is physically fit, and the first thing they tell you is how much they can bench and squat. It's just like, that's really like, like, great, that's wonderful. What these people are doing in those moments, even if it's true, they're not actually pointing you to something good that is for your benefit. They are showing you a sign that is validating their existence. But Jesus, on the other hand, the way in which he introduces himself to us, he points us to something that points to our good. The signs that Jesus gives are meant to show us the kind of king that he is and the kind of kingdom that he is bringing. I'm going to say that again. The signs that Jesus gives are meant to show us the kind of king that he is and the kind of kingdom that he is bringing. And he is doing it for our good. There's a reason why this very public miracle that Jesus gives is about benefiting other people. But here's the thing we have to keep in mind. While the signs are indeed for our good, for the benefit of the world, they are still, after all, his signs. And so what that means is that we have to interpret the signs and miracles of Jesus in the way in which he would have them be interpreted. We have to understand his intention and design because, again, only Jesus satisfies, but only on his terms. I think we like that first statement, only Jesus satisfies, that's great and that's true, but we must understand that we will only find Jesus to be satisfying if we submit and surrender to him on his terms. And, and this brings us to verse 15, which I think kind of brings all of this together. Verse 15 is kind of a strange uh, statement, but it helps understand what Jesus is doing through these signs. Perceiving then that they, referring to the crowd... Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now you might see this and you're thinking, okay, so why is Jesus so resistant to the idea of being declared king? Like, isn't that kind of like the point? Like, didn't he come to be declared the king of the world? So why is he so reluctant and avoiding, very intentionally, the work of being declared king by the crowd? It's because the crowd, as you noticed, wanted to force him to be king. The crowd was wanting Jesus to be king on their terms. 
And so you see, at this time, the Jewish people were expecting the Messiah, whom Jesus is declaring himself to be, they're expecting the Messiah to be some kind of national, political, military leader who would come and restore the nation of Israel by defeating their, their political enemies, and in this case, it's the nation of Rome. And so Jesus is not coming to do that, though. He's not that kind of king, and that's not the kind of kingdom he is bringing. And, and to kind of bring this into the 21st century, we, we find the same phenomenon in our own cultural context in the church. I mean, the church is filled with people who love Jesus, worship Jesus, follow Jesus, but you also have people who would kind of expect that Jesus to be the Jesus they want. We love and follow and worship Jesus as, as long as he agrees with the things that we agree with. We follow and worship and love Jesus as long as he would vote the way which we vote. Or we, we love and follow and worship Jesus as long as he opposes the things that we are opposed to. Or, or as long as he favors the countries that we favor or looks down upon the countries we look down upon. We love and follow and worship Jesus provided that he doesn't really have any concerns with the way in which we use our money, our time, and our bodies. We may look at the Jewish crowd and see that they're trying to force Jesus to be a king on their terms and think that we are not guilty of the same thing, but so often we try to craft Jesus in our own image rather than us being made in his image. We try to have him be king on our terms rather than seeing him declaring himself to be king on his terms. But Jesus is not a made-to-order king. Yes, he is a servant, But the type of king that he is is not a king that is made to order. Or or to use an old fast food slogan, Jesus is not the Burger King who says, have it your way. Do you guys remember the old slogan from Burger King? Have it your way. This is not who Jesus is. Yes, only Jesus satisfies, but only on his terms. And so what this means is that Jesus won't allow anyone or anything to keep him from being the king that God the Father has declared him to be. Jesus will not bow to anyone other than God the Father. And this is made abundantly clear in chapter 6 of John's gospel, but most notably in verse 38 when Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to, to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is very clear, like, I will not allow anybody to tell me what kind of king I will be, because I have come to do the will of my Father. Jesus' allegiance is to God alone. And nothing will cause him to compromise or to capitulate to anybody else in their expectations of him to be king. Nor will he allow himself to be used, to be propagated, to be exploited for any purpose other than the will of the Father. And so when we come to the signs and miracles of Jesus, when we come to scripture in general, we must be very careful that we are coming on his terms and not our own. And this is where we see what Jesus was really getting at in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The bread he offered, it wasn't just an act of compassion, although it was that. Jesus is offering bread as a way to point to the greater sign, which is himself, the bread of life. John records for us that the next day, so after the the feeding of the 5,000, the very next day, the crowd comes to Jesus looking for him, and Jesus responds with some pretty pretty blunt words here in verses 26 and 27. It says, uh, yeah, 26 and 27. We read these words. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus, Jesus is kind of calling out the crowd, so to speak, on their motives for coming to him. He's pointing out the difference between wanting someone and wanting something from someone. I think we all know that difference, right? We all know the difference of being wanted by someone and somebody just wanting something from us. The former is sincere affection. The latter is selfish transaction. And and that's how the crowd has come to Jesus. It's that latter case of selfish transaction, wanting something from him. I, I remember one of the earliest memories of this phenomenon. When I was in middle school, all of a sudden, I gained a lot of friends from the neighborhood and it coincided with the time in which we got a trampoline in our backyard. And, and so, like, I might think, oh, wow, I'm like, people really like me. But these kids in the neighborhood who didn't spend time with me all of a sudden want to come over and be my friend because I had a trampoline. I remember feeling very used in that moment. These kids didn't want me. They didn't want to be my friend. They simply wanted something from me. And it's this latter case, this example of selfish transaction, wanting something from someone that Jesus is calling out in the crowd. But, but notice that he, Jesus isn't rebuking them. He, he doesn't kind of slap them in the face for doing so, but rather he takes the opportunity to use their good desire for food, which is a good thing. He's, he's not bashing them like, how dare you be hungry? It's like, like you designed us this way. But like, he's not bashing them for being hungry. But rather he is using their good desire for food to point to the greater source of satisfaction namely himself. And so the crowds, they hear this, and they respond with a very practical question in verses 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And then Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the crowd asks a very, very blunt, practical question, and Jesus gives them a very blunt, practical answer. He's very straightforward here. What does God want us to do? He wants us to believe in Jesus. He wants us to pledge our allegiance to Jesus as king above all other kings, but not in the way in which we want to believe, not in the way in which we want him to reign and rule over our lives, because again, only Jesus satisfies, but only on his terms. But that raises the question, then what are those terms? If Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies, and if he only satisfies only on his terms, what are those terms that we are to come to him under? And even though Jesus does tend to speak a bit cryptically at times, uh, parabolically through stories and metaphor, he gets fairly clear as he shows his disciples and the surrounding crowd what he's getting at. To respond to Jesus on his terms means that we must receive him as the one we are waiting for and the one that we want. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But to receive Jesus on his terms means that we must respond to him as the one that we are waiting for and the one that we want. Jesus gives the crowd the sign of bread as a way to place himself in the grand story of God's redemptive work in all of creation. The story of Jesus is not the story of some fly-by-night religious guru who just shows up on the scene and tries to create a new kind of religious sect. 
That, that, that's not the idea, nor, nor is the story of the Bible the story of, you know, in the Old Testament, God was really angry and mean, and then Jesus comes in the New Testament, and he makes God a Christian, and everything's better. Like, that's not the story of the Christian narrative. But rather what we see, what Jesus is doing beautifully, I might add, in telling that he is the bread of life, he is showing himself to be the awaited Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of every promise that is previewed and pointed to pointed to in the Old Testament. And the sign of bread that Jesus gives is not just some random illustration. He's not like, uh, the kingdom of God's like the bread of life. You know, it's like he's not trying to like reach for some random illustration. The reference to the bread of life is a way of declaring himself to be the awaited Messiah that God's people have been anticipating for some time. In verses 30 and 31, when the Jewish crowd asked Jesus for a sign, they want him to prove, prove to us that you are who you say you are. And what they ask for is a sign much like the bread that came down from heaven that was given to Moses as Israel wandered in the wilderness. And so they ask for that type of sign. And Jesus responds with these words, starting in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So what Jesus is doing here, introducing us to himself as the bread of life, it's very similar, it's an echoing of what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And, and, and he's referring to himself as this living well of water. And, and she says something similar, Sir, give me this water that I may never thirst and have to come back to this well. And he's pointing to the longing within the human heart for satisfaction and contentment. Jesus is introducing us to himself as the long-awaited Messiah, whom God has promised from the beginning of time to be the Redeemer, the Savior, and the Recreator of the world. What Jesus is saying and telling, telling the crowd that he's the bread of life is he is placing himself, or he is introducing himself rather, as the key that unlocks the entire story of the Bible, and he is the, the, the linchpin that connects everything in this phenomenal book. But, but even if you don't know anything about the Bible, if you are unfamiliar with the whole biblical storyline, that, that's okay. You don't even have to know it to know what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is not just coming on the scene as some religious leader, but rather he is pointing to the fact that he is the solution to the problems that all of us recognize around us and see within us. Because regardless of what you know about the biblical storyline, each and every one of us knows, feels, and bears witness to the fact that the world that we inhabit and the lives that we live are broken, and they are not the way it's it's supposed to be. We all sense that regardless of your religious convictions or views of God, we all recognize that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We feel a sense of, of dissonance between the, longing, the life we long to live and the life we actually live. And how that undeniable feeling actually points to our unending search for solutions, and so again, whether, whether you subscribe to the book of Scripture, to the Bible, as a plan of, of, of redemption and salvation, each and every one of us is searching for solutions. So whether it's Jesus or not, each of us 
is waiting for someone or something to save us, to provide solutions to our problems. We search for it in our elected officials. We search for it in medical research and and technological advancements. We search for it um, even in the popular practices of self-guided mindfulness and, and wellness. And we hope that the next tech innovation or the next piece of intel or the next insight or the next political incumbent will provide the the, the solution to the problems that we all see. But they always disappoint because none of them actually treat and address the root issue of our problem. There's something deeply ingrained in us as humans that longs for and hopes for rescue. We may not call it God, we may not believe that it is Jesus, but each and every one of us longs for some kind of rescue. And Jesus is declaring himself to be the one that we have been waiting for, who cures what really ails us and restores what truly breaks us. Again, only Jesus satisfies, but he only does so on his terms. And so when Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life, what he's saying in this statement is that he he has come to nourish our broken bodies, but he has also come to satisfy our longing hearts. He has not just come to be our savior, he has come to be our satisfier. And we see this in in perhaps the the central verse in chapter six, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I find it so timely that we come to John's gospel in John chapter 6, right after spending several weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes, where that whole book, if you weren't with us in the book of Ecclesiastes, consider yourself blessed, but but the book of Ecclesiastes basically tells us, look, we are trying to search for meaning and significance by chasing pleasure after pleasure and finding nothing. How beautiful and refreshing and reassuring it is to go from the book of Ecclesiastes that says, look, if life under the sun, a world without God is all there is, then truly life is pointless. But now we come to the voice of Jesus, declaring to us, beautifully so, that he has come to be the redeemer of our broken world. That he has come to not only bring us satisfaction, but to be our satisfaction. He has not simply come to bring us satisfaction. He has come to be our satisfaction. For Jesus is our Savior, but he is also our satisfier. And he alone knows what our hearts truly hunger for and long for. And until we give up on our search for significance and satisfaction in lesser things, we will find ourselves perpetually dissatisfied. As St. Augustine so powerfully declared, a very famous uh, quote from his book, Confessions, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts, that's the message of Ecclesiastes. Our hearts are restless. That's Ecclesiastes. Until they find their rest in thee. That's John 6. Only Jesus satisfies, but only on his terms. And so church, if if you have come to find Jesus as the king that he has declared himself to be, as the bread of life who satisfies, then my word of exhortation to you is to remain steadfast in your joyful pursuit of him, being yoked to him every day of your life. Receiving Jesus as the bread of life doesn't mean that we try it once and sample it and then move on. 
Receiving Jesus, the bread of life, means that he is the source of our nourishment, of our sustenance and satisfaction. And so often our joy in Jesus diminishes because we don't know how he relates to and speaks to our Monday lives. We see Jesus as being relevant to our spiritual life, but we don't see how he connects to all of life. And this is why we need the church. This is why we need one another, not for more information, but for formation. This this is why we engage and provide the pathway of the formed life. If you haven't joined us in that, it is our daily spiritual pathway of, of seeking to follow after Jesus engaging in practices of study, of prayer, and spiritual disciplines, not out of a sense of obligation, but so that we might feast upon Jesus, the bread of life, and find him to be satisfying. And so if you've made Jesus king on his terms, then remain joyfully diligent in pledging your allegiance to him in thought, in word, and in deed. Not simply because he's the author of life that commands it, but because he's the bread of life that has come to satisfy us. But if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, if you're here and you're, you're wondering if there's any type of, of solution or end to your endless search for significance and satisfaction, if you're here wondering whether you will ever have your insatiable thirst quenched in this world, if you are here and you're perplexed by the longing that is in your heart for something that you have not yet found but are convinc- convinced exists, then my word to you is to taste and see that the Lord is good. And to see Jesus not simply as our redeemer, although he is that, but as our satisfier, as the bread of life. And even though I may not know your story, even though I may not know the things that you have pursued to find satisfaction in, I do know this, that whatever the thing is that you are aiming for, living for, and hoping for, I assure you that joy will elude you if you do not respond to the invitation of Jesus being the bread of life. And the reason I can say that is because whatever the thing is that you are hoping for, aiming for, searching for, longing for, reaching for, it didn't offer its life for yours. It didn't stand in your place condemned for you. It didn't suffer a broken body on your behalf. It did not shed its blood so that you might be redeemed and forgiven and declared God's beloved. Whatever it is that you are after, it did not secure your eternal life through defeating death by entering death on your behalf. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the bread of life, did all of that to the nth degree. And he lovingly and freely offers you his life as the bread of life in his kingdom now and forever. If we would declare him king, not from a place of obligation, but from a place of adoration and joy, For only Jesus satisfies, but only on his terms. Amen? Jesus did not simply come to bring us life. He came to be our life. He did not simply come to bring us satisfaction. He came to be our satisfaction. For in Christ, we find the questions of life answered. We find the promises that God brings fulfilled. We see the solution to our problems discovered and the longings of our hearts completed. And we remind ourselves of what we have found in him when we come to the Lord's table, when we come to remember and rejoice what Christ has done on our behalf. For at the table, we proclaim together as one body the truth That through Christ's broken body and his shed blood on our behalf, we find life and life abundantly. 